would you open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 28 for our third week in a row. Matthew 28. It's on page 835 if you're using a pew Bible this morning. I'm going to begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I do give you thanks for your word and pray that you would use it this morning to encourage our hearts and our souls in this great commission you have entrusted to us. That along the way we might know the presence of Jesus Christ with us as we seek to make disciples of all nations. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin reading this morning from verse 16 of Matthew 28. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And so Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Our only focus this morning is on that promise that Jesus gives the disciples there in verse 20. Behold, I am with you always. That's all we're looking at this morning is that promise. The first week of our Global Missions Emphasis Month, we spoke about the authority behind the Great Commission. So what we looked at, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. That is a universal authority, and He reigns from heaven with it. He has all power and might over the nations. That's the authority behind the Great Commission. And then last week we looked at the nature of the Great Commission. What is it, in light of that authority, what is it that we're supposed to be doing as a church? And we saw in verses 19 to 20 that our task as Christians is to make disciples of all nations. We go and we preach and we love and we give and we sacrifice and we teach until Christ is named among all people groups of the world. But as one brother put it to me in an email last week, how do we, ordinary Christians, how do we carry out such a lofty commission to make disciples of all nations? Where in the world do we get the wherewithal to finish such a worldwide task, especially when the darkness is so thick and the rebellion against Christ is so great? And the answer to that question is in the promise of verse 20. Behold, Jesus says, I am with you always 
That promise and everything bound up in this promise is our courage for the Great Commission. And that's where I want to take us this morning is into the courage that we have for the task of global missions. Let's look at five truths regarding our courage for the Great Commission. Number one, our courage was secured by the passion of Christ. Our courage was secured by the passion of Christ. Jesus says, I am with you. I am with you. How is it that Jesus, who is no one less than God Almighty in the flesh, how is it that Jesus says, I am with you? A bunch of rag-tag, sinful, and faithless disciples. Have you, have you read about these guys in the Gospel of Matthew? Sure, they follow Jesus. These disciples follow Jesus wherever he goes. But how many times do we hear Jesus say things like, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Or, O you of little faith, why did you doubt me? Or, O you of little faith, do you not yet perceive? Do you not yet remember what I did when I fed the 4,000 and the 5,000? Jesus also rebukes Peter for not understanding that the Christ must first suffer. And he does so with the words, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then once we make it to the end of Matthew's Gospel, uh, where Jesus is betrayed and arrested, the disciples don't even stand at His side. They all flee. They run away. They forsake Jesus and leave Him alone. We even get an account of Peter lying about even knowing Jesus in order to save his own skin. And yet here in verse 20, we find Jesus saying, I am with you. I am with you, Peter, and the rest of you disciples who forsook me. How is it that Jesus can just overlook his disciples' sinfulness and their faithlessness and give them a promise as awesome as companionship with the Almighty God, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth? The Bible says that sin against God and unbelief in the human heart separate people from God to the degree that people can do nothing in their own power to mend that relationship. Isaiah 59 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden, they have hidden God's face from you so that He does not hear for your lips are full of lies and your tongue mutters wickedness. So how is it that Jesus, the Almighty God, can just overlook His disciples' sinfulness and say, I am with you? The answer is that He doesn't overlook their sinfulness, but that He had just died for their sinfulness. When they were faithless and left Jesus, Jesus remained faithful unto death on their behalf so that their faithlessness 
could be forgiven. You see, Jesus' words, I am with you, recall the very language God himself uses with his covenant people throughout the Old Testament. For God to be with you was for God to be with you in a very special sense, a, a sense that differs from the way that he's with, with everyone else in the world. For God to be with you meant that he was present in your life in a very favorable sense that was far more personal and characterized by God's own loyalty and companionship to you. We get a feel for it in places like Isaiah 41 when he tells his covenant people in light of what he's going to do for them through the suffering servant, you Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, and he calls them my friend. My friend whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold you by my righteous right hand. Or in Isaiah 43, because you, Israel, are precious in my eyes. And you are honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. So Isaiah is helping us understand what does it mean for God to be with you? It means for God to be your friend. It means for God to help you and to strengthen you. It means for you to be precious in the sight of God. It means for you to be honored and that He loves you. The only way that kind of covenant companionship with God is possible is if something happens to deal with the sin that separates you from God. And that's why Jesus came and died, to deal with the sin that separates us from God and to secure for us God's special covenant presence forever. In fact, let me just point this out to you in a couple places in Matthew's Gospel. Turn over with me back to the very first chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 1, page 807 in the Pew Bible. I want to look at verses 21 to 23. This is when the angel comes to Jacob. Sorry, to Joseph. And he tells Joseph in verse 21, Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And why, did, why is she having the son? For he will save his people from their sins. That's why Jesus comes into the world, to save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Us, sinful lot of people. God with us. So Matthew begins his gospel by saying that God is with us in the person of Jesus, and that the whole point of Jesus' coming is to save his people from their sins. And then Matthew's gospel ends with Jesus himself telling the disciples, I am with you. I am with you. 
which means something really important had to happen between the resurrection and his virgin birth in order for that to be true. How can Jesus say, I am with you? It's because he not only came into the world for the purpose of saving his people from their sins, but he actually saved them from their sins. And we see that in Matthew 26 in the Last Supper. So go with me to Matthew 26. Eight thirty-two of the Pew Bible, Matthew twenty-six, verse twenty-seven. This is the uh, when he's instituting the Lord's Supper. He's eating the last Passover meal with his disciples, and he takes the cup in verse twenty-seven. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, "Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant." Remember that. That covenant presence we've been talking about. His companionship, his loyalty to us. This is the, my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He's going to the cross and when he does, he dies for the forgiveness of sins. All your adultery... All your murder, murder, murderous thoughts in your heart, all the lustful thoughts that cross your mind, all of your fist shaking at God, all of your lies, all of your laziness at work, all of your gossip, all of your thankless attitudes, all your disobedience to your parents, forgiven in the death of Jesus Christ. That's how Jesus can promise to be with us, sinful as we are. He can promise to be with sinful, faithless people like us because by dying in our place, He removed the very obstacle keeping us from fellowship with Him, namely our sins and the wrath of God against our sins. He took away our sins to give us Himself forever that He might promise us at the end of Matthew 28, I am with you. That's how Jesus tells his disciples this promise. Every syllable that pro- in that promise is, is bought with precious blood. And there is no greater relationship in all of heaven and earth than a personal relationship with the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, Jesus Christ. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus, if you are not trusting Him and following Him and learning to love what He loves and hate what He hates, then this promise is not yours. This promise does not belong to you. Your sins still separate you from God and you will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction if you refuse to become Jesus' disciple. But if you believe that Jesus died for your sins, if you place all your confidence in His death and in His resurrection life to forgive your sins and to bring you back to God, then this promise is yours. This promise is yours. God Almighty will be with you when when you trust in the Son that He sent to die for you. And that's true for everybody in this room. 
believer and unbeliever alike. So that's the first look at our courage. Our courage, which is bound up with Jesus being with us, was secured by the passion of Christ. His sufferings and His death on the cross. Second, our courage flows from the power of Christ. Our courage flows from the power of Christ. It's another way of saying Jesus didn't stay in the tomb. Jesus says in verse 20 that no one less than I am with you. Who is I? Well, Jesus, of course. Jesus. But as what kind of person does Jesus give this promise? The one who's just broken the chains of death and risen from the dead never to die again. The one who's been seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and has been given a name that is above every name not only in heaven, not only, not only on, uh, uh, in this age but also in the age to come. It's this Jesus who commits himself to you for the mission. Just think about that for a moment. We, we, when we went over the authority of Jesus Christ a couple of weeks ago, we said that His authority meant that He had the supreme right and the infinite power to achieve all His purposes without fail. He has the supreme right and the infinite power to achieve all His purposes without fail, and he's promising, in this text, he's promising a covenant relationship with you if you're his disciple. That means that he has the supreme right in heaven and on earth to actually make such a promise and the infinite power to ensure that promise to you never fails. Not a single person in this room or in this world can make a promise like that. How many promises do you make to your children or to your employer or to your wife or to your friends that end up getting scrambled or canceled or delayed by unforeseen circumstances? That never happens with Jesus' promises. Never. Even despite all appearances to be otherwise like gray mornings that leave you wondering where he is or trials that leave you wondering whether he's really in control of this or when painful events uh, spread across the news that test your trust in God's wisdom over all things. Even despite all of the appearances, Jesus' promise to be with us can never fail. Satan did not have the power to distract Jesus from rescuing us and bringing us to himself. We see that in Matthew 4. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus, Jesus says, you shall worship alone God. Satan did not have the power to distract Jesus from rescuing us and all his temptations against Jesus. Your sin did not have the power to stop Jesus in his commitment to you as evidenced by his journey to the cross 
and is suffering under the wrath of God on the cross, in your place, having to endure God's wrath. Just think, every day of his life, he knows he's going to his appointed hour where he will bear the full brunt of the wrath of God on your behalf, and it does not stop him from going there and bearing that wrath. It doesn't stop him from becoming a curse on your behalf and suffering unto death in your place. Not even death had the power to hold Jesus in the grave, nor will it have the power to hold you in the grave on the last day. Jesus conquered it once and for all that he might be with you. Moreover, Jesus has the ability to act in every situation of our lives with perfect wisdom and infallible execution such that nobody or anything in heaven or on earth can sever his union with you or compromise his devotion to you. On top of that, the fact that he's God means that he never lies and that he never forgets his promises. That's good news. That's really good news for us as his disciples when he says... No one less than I am with you, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. That means that when we go out on mission for Christ, we can truly say as Christians with Paul in Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, how many tribulations have you endured this week? Shall tribulation, shall distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or even slaughter, he says, when he quotes an Old Testament passage. Will any of those things separate us? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. We're not more than conquerors because of our devotion to Christ, because of His devotion to us. Because of His devotion to us. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, which is basically Paul's way of just saying, you fill in the blank. Nothing else, not anything else in... All creation, not your chronic illness, not your, your oppressive bosses, not your financial insecurity, not your loss of a wife and son when you get on the mission field like John Patton, which we'll talk about in a minute. Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what it means when Jesus makes a promise to be with you. His promise gives us courage for the mission because it flows from the power of the risen Christ himself who lives in heaven on our behalf. Third, our courage enjoys the presence of Christ. Our courage enjoys the presence of Christ. Jesus says, I am with you always. Not, I will be with you sometime in the future when I return to earth. 
Not, I will be with you every now and then along the way, popping in from time to time to see how you're doing as my disciple. Not, I am with you over here with this people group in America, but not over there when you go over there to that country. He says, I am with you always. There's an expression here in the Greek that, uh, that most, that most, uh, that's translated in most of your Bibles with the word always. I'm with you always. The idea is that Jesus is with us the whole of every day, even to the end of the age. He's with us the whole of every day. The same idea is behind God's promise to Noah. After, uh, after when God gives Noah the promise that he's never going to flood the earth again, and he talks about the seasons and all that. In, eight, in Genesis 8.22, God promises that all the days of the earth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. The whole of every day will be characterized by God's faithfulness to the earth and its seasons, its days, and its nights. The same idea is also behind a famous psalm that is likely very dear to many of us. Uh, psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, shall not want. In verse 6 of Psalm 23, David says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All the days of my life. This is what Jesus means when he says, I am with you always. He's with us the whole of every day until the end of the age. Some of you might be saying, okay, well, uh, how is that really possible if he's in heaven and I'm on earth? Well, the Bible teaches us that the way that works out is through the mediate, mediating work of the Holy Spirit, whom he sends to be with his disciples. Jesus is present with us through the Holy Spirit who dwells within us and empowers us as His disciples. One day, we will enjoy Jesus' presence fully in the New Jerusalem when the glory of God lights up the city and the lamp of that city is its lamb and all the saints shine like the sun because we'll all be reflecting His glory. One day, we will enjoy Jesus' presence like that, but now we enjoy His presence through the Holy Spirit. I'll just take you to one place, John 14. If you want to turn there with me, you can. Or you can just listen. John 14, I'll start in verse 15. It's on page 901 of the Pew Bible. Jesus says, John 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Okay, that's what disciples do. So if you're his disciple, these next few sentences are true for you. If you love me, I will keep, you, will keep my, uh, you, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and he will be in you. So this is prior to him going to the cross, rising from the dead and ascending into heaven and asking his Father, okay, send the Spirit. 
So he says, he will be in you. That's the spirit will be in you. Then verse 18. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. That is Christ himself, in you. And if you ask Jesus, uh, which one is it? Spirit in me in that day, or Christ in me? He says, yes. Jesus is present with his disciples through the mediating work of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. That's how he's with us in the mission. So, that means the Great Commission, this charge that Jesus is giving his disciples, can never just amount to, well, do your best. See ya. Jesus' command to make disciples is not like that of a boss who just gives you an assignment and then walks away expecting you you to figure everything out based on your own savviness. Jesus gives us the assignment and then never leaves us throughout the mission until it's accomplished. He remains our companion and our help and our strength throughout the work even when that work is trying. I told you I was going to tell you about John Patton a little bit, so here it is. I mentioned his biography last week. I thought it would be good to give you an example of Christ's faithfulness to this very promise in a missionary's life. Patton was a minister from Scotland, and he served for several years teaching in Glasgow before Uh, answering the Lord's call at age 33 to take the gospel to the people that lived on a stretch of islands called the New Hebrides. It's Vanuatu today, and it's off the eastern side of of Australia. All right? The natives at this time in, in history, the natives to these islands, were cannibals. All right? So not only would they occasionally eat the flesh of their defeated foes, but they also practice infanticide and widow sacrifice to propitiate this or that evil spirit. And Patton's going to these people to see the gospel named, to see Christ named among them. All right, so with that sinking into your heads, get this. One night, a few of these natives come to his hut and they have war paint on their face and giant clubs in their hands and they're demanding from Patton that he give him that they give them that he give them medicine to take care of the, the measles epidemic that is broken out in among them. And after a brief exchange, it becomes clear that they wanted to take more than Patton's medicine, they also wanted to take his life. All right. The only thing that had stopped these guys when they're raising their clubs at Patton is his dogs attack them and, and chase them into the forest. And as, he, and he's, as the two guys are running off in the forest scattering, there's all these other warriors joining them, fleeing from these dogs. And Patton says, After the danger was all past, I had always a strange feeling of fear. More, perhaps, from the thought that I had been on the verge of eternity and so near the great white throne than from any slavish fear. 
That's what he says about after the danger was passed. But during the crisis, during, the, the, during these guys with clubs, right? During the crisis, I felt generally calm and firm of soul, standing erect with my whole weight on the promise, Lo, I am with you always. Precious promise, he says. How often I adore Jesus for it and rejoice in it. On another occasion, Patton had to hide himself up in a, in a tree, okay, while all by himself at night, while these same types of folks are on the ground looking for him, trying to hunt him down. All right, and this is what he says about that night in the chestnut tree. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among these chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. And then he says this, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence and to enjoy His consoling fellowship. That's Matthew 28, 20, on the ground among the New Hebrides. Our courage for the mission enjoys the presence of Christ in times of prosperity and in times of pain, in times of cheer and in times of great fear. He is with us the whole of every day, never missing from any circumstance that we undergo as his disciples. Fourth, our courage trusts the provision of Christ. Our courage trusts in the provision of Christ. If Jesus has all authority in heaven and on the earth, this earth that we deal with day in and day out, then he has the ability to give us everything we need to complete the mission. Jesus' promise is necessary for the mission, not just because it gives us his consoling fellowship, because he gives us encouraging reassurance of his presence, as crucial as that is, but also because we need his ongoing help and provision. This is what Jesus has been trying to teach his, his disciples throughout the Gospel of Matthew before he even gets here. He's been trying to teach his disciples to trust him, to supply them with everything they need as they spread the gospel of the kingdom in all the inhabited earth. The disciples need understanding, for example, about kingdom living. And you see in Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus teaching them about living as kingdom citizens. The disciples need more laborers to join them for the harvest, and Jesus is present with them to send more laborers into the harvest. The disciples need words to speak when they suffer persecution and Jesus is present by His Spirit to give them the exact words that, need, that they need to say. 
The disciples will face great fears in making other disciples, and Jesus promises to give them the courage of his heavenly Father's care. The disciples will lose brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and children and lands for the sake of following Jesus. But Jesus says that he will give them a hundredfold and eternal life to go with it. Most of all, their greatest need, the disciples need their sins forgiven. And Jesus even lays down his life for the forgiveness of their sins. At every turn, Jesus is teaching them in this gospel to depend on his provision. And not just his provision for themselves, but also his provision for all the nations. That means we can never let the needs of the Great Commission, and they are huge. We can never let the needs of the Great Commission swallow up our passion to invest in the Great Commission. Do you ever feel, do you you ever deal with, with these sort of paralyzing fears related to Christ's provision when it comes to evangelism and discipleship? Here's here's why I think here's why I think some of us struggle struggle with investing, not just handing somebody a track, but actually investing in what we call discipleship in the lives of other people, especially people whom we perceive to have greater spiritual, material, physical, and social needs than us. We often do one of two things. Either we look at the vast amounts that they need immediately, the the vast amount of, of their immediate needs, and we say, there's no way I can be involved here. Just not even, we just shut off. There's no way, the needs are too great. I don't have them. I can't be involved. Or, we try to imagine how much time and energy and resources someone's going to suck out of us in the discipleship process that we end up saying, there's no way I could do this. Look at all the money and time and everything else that it would involve. I'm out. Here's your track. Thank you very much. Here's 20 bucks. Go find somebody else. Both of these are a failure to remember Jesus' promise in verse 20, and they are insulting to the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. It's insulting to Jesus' ability to provide for the mission at every turn, no matter how great the needs are in your own mind. I mean, who do you really think Jesus is in those moments? Test yourself when you're confronted with a scenario like that and you just see the needs just stacking up in your mind. Who's Jesus in that moment? His authority hasn't changed. His power hasn't changed. His ability to provide is infinite. I mean, we are making, we are making disciples of all people groups of the world. Do you know how much that costs? In training and plane of uh, airfare, shipping, Bibles translated into other languages. Do you know how much, how many language barriers the gospel has to cross? According to Joshua Project, there's thirteen thousand ethno-linguistic people groups on this earth, and they all need Bibles. How do you teach biblical manhood and womanhood to a tribe that kills widows to propitiate their false gods? 
Can you imagine starting with the New Hebrides? Where do you begin to disciple when the man in Mali with seven wives repents and trusts in Jesus for salvation? That takes a lot of wisdom. How do you teach on justification by faith in a culture that has no concept of justice? How many years are you willing to spend discipling the 19-year-old girl who has no home, no family, no money, no job, but only the desire to follow Jesus since you just told her about him? The needs of the Great Commission are incalculable, but they are no match for the authority of Jesus Christ on earth. And we can take courage that he who is with us in the mission will provide for the mission at every turn. Lastly, our courage serves the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Our courage serves the proclamation of Christ. Jesus' promise is for disciples who make disciples. His promise is for disciples who make disciples. It's for those who follow Him in giving their lives to see the nations glad in God. We cannot receive the promise of verse 20 apart from the command of verse 19 or the authority of Jesus in verse 18. They all hang together. And that means Jesus' promise to be with us is not so that we can experience His presence apart from the mission in something more comfortable in the world, but so that we experience His presence in the mission. That's, that's where you experience Jesus' presence. In the mission. A mission that oftentimes leads to great hardships, suffering, and even persecution. Let me take you just to one more passage in 2 Timothy. Second Timothy... It's on page 996 that we're starting, 2 Timothy chapter 4. I want to take you here because I think we get a very tangible picture of what Jesus means by His promise in Matthew 28 and how that promise is in service of our courage to proclaim, to announce the gospel at all costs to our own livelihood. So 2 Timothy 4, I'm going to start in verse 5. These are his words to Timothy. As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He's on the verge of death is what he's saying. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 
Do your best to come to me soon, for Demos, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Then go to verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first events, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Looks like a life in the way of Calvary. Remember all the disciples fleeing, deserting Jesus. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. So to this point, stop there. To this point, just think for a minute. We've seen suffering being poured out as a drink offering, fighting the good fight of faith, desertion and abandonment, opposition to his own preaching, great harm from this guy named Alexander the coppersmith, and then more desertion. All those things. How does Paul endure all of that in the mission. Where does Paul receive his courage? Look at verse 17 now. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. That, that's Matthew 28, 20 playing out in the Apostle Paul's life. The Lord stood by me and he strengthened me. That's where Paul's courage comes from. It comes from the Lord who promised to be with his disciples. Now notice what his presence with him in the midst of suffering is to serve. What is it serving? Verse 17 again. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. There it is. In the midst of the mission, Christ's encouraging presence serves not just our endurance, it serves the proclamation of the gospel to all nations. Brothers and sisters, the presence of Almighty Jesus is our courage for the mission. He died for our courage. He rose again to give us courage. He sent the Spirit to make His encouraging presence known to us day in and day out. He means to provide more of His courage wherever we go and whatever needs we have. And His courage should free us to open our mouths in whatever circumstances we're in to proclaim His grace to others. Whether that's in a chestnut tree in the New Hebrides or at the park on Las Vegas Trail in about 30 minutes. Jesus is with you in your prayers at night. Jesus is with you when you rise in the morning. Jesus is with you as you care and disciple, care for and disciple your children. Jesus is with you when you do your work as unto the Lord and not to please man. Jesus is with you as you tell your co-workers about him. Jesus is with you when you spend your years building a platform for ministry efforts in an unreached land like Southeast Asia and a flood wipes it out overnight. Jesus is with you. Jesus is with you as you consider the costs of moving your family to Central Asia 
Jesus is with you as you and your wife consider creative ways to show hospitality to your neighbors. Jesus is with you as you encounter various physical weaknesses that may call for sustained medical attention as Christ's disciple. At all times, Jesus is with us that we might bear witness to his marvelous grace that on the last day he might receive praise from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Let's pray that he works that courage into us. Father in heaven, I give you thanks for this promise from Jesus, and I pray that it would be with us the whole of every day, and that you would bring it to our remembrance often by the Holy Spirit who is with us, that our tongues might be loosed to, to shout the good news to all peoples around us, and that our feet may be shodden with the gospel of peace to take it into dark places. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.